We're using 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3 as our outline to navigate the book. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. So that's it. The work of faith, which we've now looked at, chapters 1 through 3, verse 10. And then the labor of love, which we are now into, and we'll talk a lot about tonight. In fact, we'll finish the second part, the labor of love, which will be chapter 3, verse 11, through chapter 4, verse 12. And then finally, the steadfastness of hope, which will finish up the book, chapter 4, verse 13, on through 5. So here we are, chapter 4, smack in the middle of the labor of love, but it is not love as the culture sees it. I think you know this, but Paul writes, and go back a little bit now, verse 12 of chapter 3, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. Agape, not eros, which is the Greek word for lustful love, not storge, which is the Greek word for more of a parental type of a love, and not phileo or Philadelphia, Friendship, brotherly love. No, agape love. May you abound. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in agape for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Listen, if you want to be with all His saints when He comes, doesn't it follow that we would practice living as saints now. I was watching uh, Russell Wilson being interviewed for this coming Seahawks season. Woohoo! And he was talking about all the off-season work they've done. All the training. He's in top shape. Talking about constant preparation, practice, involvement with the team so that on day one, so that at the first game, he's ready to go. And yet there are Christians who say, oh yeah, I want to be with His saints, but they're not living that way. Why would we not live as saints now? Not as a condition of our salvation. No, Jesus paid for that. But as conditioning for salvation. Are we in shape spiritually? And if not, that's okay. Come on into God's gym and let's work out of it tonight. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26, I run in such a way as not without aim. You know, the track runner who's all over the track ain't going to win a race. He says, I, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave. So that, Paul says, after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Oh, wait a minute. Paul, are you saying that after all your preaching, if you haven't done it right, you could lose your salvation? He's not saying that at all. What he is saying, I believe, is not disqualification from heaven, but disqualification from the prize. What prize? The imperishable wreath. A a crown, if you will. Paul was running for the prize beyond the goal. The goal is salvation. Once you break that tape, which Jesus already did, as we talked about, breaking the chains of sin and death, once you break the tape, you are on into eternity. Salvation is the goal, but the prize comes after the goal. 
The price comes once I have entered. Jesus says, Revelation 22.12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And that has nothing to do with salvation. He is not rendering salvation based on how well you did. If he was, none of us would be saved. But he is rendering rewards. Paul often talks about the crown. He talks about all kinds of crowns. Five of them, actually, in the Scriptures. Rewards for service rendered. I don't want to be disqualified for any of it. Why, Paul? Well, because the reward reflects the good pleasure of God. Think about it that way. The more you are rewarded, it's because God is all the more pleased. And I want my Father to be pleased. It's not that I want crowns. I just want to be in the presence of Jesus. And there are those who say, I want a crown so I have something to cast, you know, along with the elders. I get that. But that's not the issue. The issue is, for every reward received, it comes from a Father who is pleased. And I want my Abba to be pleased with me. So Paul says, man, I am running in condition. I am staying in spiritual shape so that I can please my Father. The greater the reward, the more pleased is He with the saint. And so we want to show up in good condition. The condition of the saved. Now, in this call to love, to increase and abound in love for one another, remember the two issues of this letter, perseverance and expectancy. Perseverance and expectancy, and it is all connected here to loving in the way that Paul is describing here in this section that we're calling the labor of love. Not love as culture sees it. And Paul is making, well, he's about to make an urgent appeal to uh, these brethren who abound in love for one another that they would abound even more. That however far we've come in our learning to love, in our sharing of agape one to another, there's always more. Remember Sunday we talked about that. We're all still lacking. None of us are complete in our agape. There's still more we can give. There's still more we can learn and more that we can understand. But Paul now says, I want you to abound even more in agape in this area, and that is with moral, with sexual purity. I want you to be sexually pure. I want you to be morally upright. I read that and I thought, Paul, what does that have to do with eschatology? I am in an end time. I'm very excited about getting, especially to the latter part of chapter 4 and on into chapter 5 and 2 Thessalonians. End time stuff. That's exciting. And all of a sudden there's this section... On sexual immorality, I'm like, okay, we did Romans, we did 1 Corinthians, we did 2 Corinthians, we've covered the topic. Lord, covered again. Okay. And so here we are. And in this letter that is very much end times focused, Paul right in the heart of the labor of love defines moral purity and calls the people at Thessalonica to it. I guess you could say that sexual purity is at least one clear indication of a person who's in condition. 
that sexual purity reveals someone who is, Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Man, if that's on your radar, if that's what you're looking for, that will affect your moral purity. That will affect sexual behavior. Now, I know there are some here who are saying, okay, Rick, I've been married 50 years, and this is not an issue for me. And I'm telling you, give me a minute. If moral purity is a measure of our readiness for the coming of Jesus, how ready are you? I think it's a fair question for all of us to ask. Verse 1 Paul says, finally then. Now, that's not a good translation. (laughs) He's not ending the letter. He's not closing things up. Actually, the word finally, the Greek word is better translated, and you would see this in the King James, furthermore. So he's continuing with the thought about abounding and increasing in love for one another so that we will be established at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, furthermore, so he's not concluding, he's continuing, furthermore, brethren, We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. So even for those who are walking strong in the work of faith and in the labor of love, Paul says, man, it's still a good idea to continue to seek the pleasure of God. To always ask that question, am I pleasing God? Is what I'm doing pleasing to my Father? Is my behavior pleasing? Is my thought life pleasing? Is my entertainment pleasing to God? Am I bringing joy to my Heavenly Father? There's one problem with the whole idea of pleasing God. The Bible says, Romans 8 verse 8, those who are in the flesh can't do it. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, look around. I think that's most of us here. If you're in the flesh, you can't please God? Yeah, only by faith can you please Him. You cannot please Him with your flesh. That's actually really good news because that means it's not about the harder I work. It's not about how I dress this up, which is why I went to flannel tonight. I'm so comfortable right now. Can't even tell you. Had a nice button-down shirt on today, and it was just like, like Jesus, can it just be cool enough for me to wear flannel? And He made it so, so I'm very happy. (laughs) Only by faith can we please God. I know that was random. And we will see, note this, we will see that there's one one other thing given to us that allows us to please God. It is by faith and by His Spirit. Without faith, without the Holy Spirit, you can't please God. Note this, Hebrews 11 verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith it is impossible to please Him. It is no coincidence, by the way, that the same section of this letter with, which ends with the promise of being taken up like Enoch was, begins with pleasing God like Enoch did. We're going to get to the rapture of the church here in short order. And when we do, understand it is directly tied to the pleasure of the Father. 
Enoch just made God happy. He just pleased God. And God said, you know what? Just come on home. Just come, because we're having such a good, I would have loved to have been, to have been a part of that conversation. What were they talking about that God enjoyed so much that He would say, the road back to your place is long, you know, just come on home with me. And Enoch was, is the first person in history raptured, caught up to be with God. Genesis 5 tells us about that. Hebrews 11 repeats the matter. That Enoch was caught up. Why? Because he was pleasing to God. And I believe that there is a direct connection between the pleasure of the Lord and the rapture of the saints. Not the work of your flesh. Remember, it's not the flesh that pleases God. You can't do it. But faith pleases God. And so your faith in Jesus is what puts you on the list for the rapture of the church. Got that? Like Enoch. And so we seek to find out what it means, how to please God, and excel still more, Paul says, for you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Now it says by the authority of the Lord Jesus, but the authority is italicized because it was stuck in there. It's the same thing. If you're doing something by the Lord Jesus, you are doing it under His authority. And so that's why the translators add that. But Paul says, this doesn't come from me. This comes from the Lord Jesus. What does Paul? Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And I kid you not, I saw that and I went, Lord, again. Pornia. It's the Greek word. Where we get pornography... Sexual immorality, I'm like, Lord, I spent 15 years in youth ministry. And every other year we did the sex ed conversation topic with the teenagers. And I was so glad to get out of youth ministry because I didn't have to talk about sexual immorality anymore. And we started going through the Scriptures. Thanks a lot, Paul. He talks about it all the time. Why? Does Paul have issues? No. But the early church did. And so does, unfortunately, the latter church. Issues with pornea. By the way, pornea, I remind you, leaves nothing out. It is the full range of sexual impurity. Pornea includes and involves any and all sexual behavior outside of a God-ordained marriage between a man and a woman. Anything that's not that is pornea. So, it's, it's a blanket term, no pun intended. It's, it's a, a, a covering term that is everything. And so, and so the homosexual who says, well, I'm offended. Well, you shouldn't be any more offended than the, than the couple living together. Same thing. Pornea. You know? The person committing adultery is in the same category as the young person who is sleeping with a boyfriend or a girlfriend prior to marriage. It's pornea. It's the same thing. It puts all sexual immorality in the exact same category. Now, like I said a few minutes ago, many of you have been married a long time. I heard that Bill and Joan Gilmore just celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary. They've got Cheryl and I doubled. I'm impressed. Cheryl and I are married 31 years today. Happy anniversary. That's all she's getting, that's it. 
That's the card right there. Your applause. That was her card. That's what happens after 31 years. I think year 31 is the gift of nothing. Pretty sure. Was that last year? I can't keep track of it. (laughs) But listen, married or not, I do not assume that there is rampant sexual immorality going on in our fellowship. Maybe I'm wrong. But I don't think that's a a, a huge glaring problem. It it does does, uh, present itself from time to time. You know, I've... Run across my desk a few times, you know, issue here, problem there, thing, you know, and, and talk and pray and, and, and seek healing and restoration and, and forgiveness. But I, I don't see this as a huge issue. And neither does Paul with Thessalonica, but he's writing to a people, understand, who are fresh out of paganism. They are not like us in that they don't have 2,000 years of Christianity behind them. They don't have 2,000 years of teaching on what pornea is, what it looks like, what the problem is with it. Which is why we hear so much instruction in Paul's letters about pornea, because they come right after it. That was lifestyle for so many of them in the first century. Especially once the Greeks, the Gentiles, started flooding into the church and all the Jews were going, you know. Because at least the Jewish people had some level of morality. More on that in a minute. We get this, don't we? Don't we as Christians understand when someone says sexual immorality, don't we know what that is, what that means? We have some sense of what that looks like. I am stunned when I read the statistics. I am amazed not only at what the statistics say regarding sexual immorality in Christian circles, I'm amazed at the attitudes that are arising, especially in the newer generations, the more recent generations, regarding it. Living together is not a problem. Sleeping around is just its what you do. Cohabitating before you're married, well, that's, that's what you do so you know if, if you're, you know, a good fit for each other. And this attitude has become so rampant. And I think part of the reason is because the church, pastors, have done such a pathetic job talking about sexual immorality. We've left it to the youth group. Rather than just studying through the Word of God, which forces us to deal with it, as we have to again tonight. Because it's here, man. I can't get around it. But it's deeper than simple pornea. At least as we might define it. It's deeper, it's more intense among us as believers than simply acting in a sexually immoral way or one that we would say, well, that's sexual immorality. Easy. You know, ding, that's what that is. There are other ways that we have embraced it, accepted it, and live in it and with it as Christians in 2017. Conservative commentator Matt Walsh He's taken a lot of flack. This is a guy who's really said it like he believes it. He is a conservative Christian. Actually, I believe he's Catholic, but very conservative in his views. And he wrote for TheBlaze.com. Now, I'm always careful with The Blaze. I don't know if you know this, but Glenn Beck is a, is a Mormon. And so there is Mormon influence there. And that always makes me say, you know, heads up, be aware, be alert, because there's truth and there's lies. 
But Matt Walsh himself is a proclaimed Christian. He wrote in a recent uh, commentary that was sent to me just this last week. Many of us as Christians have decided that our entertainment choices ought to be exempt from moral scrutiny. Ready to get uncomfortable. He says, we've come to the convenient conclusion that television is a neutral medium. We need not even engage with someone who suggests that a certain TV show or a movie is not helpful in our Christian walk. It's just entertainment, we respond with a shrug. Which is a bit like saying it's just food when someone warns that a Cinnabon won't help us lose weight. He says this attitude is especially troubling because we waste almost all of our time being entertained. This shocked me. Check this out. The average American spends five hours a day watching TV. That's according to the New York Times, uh, July 1st, 2016. The average American spends another five hours on top of that on his phone, tablet, laptop, or playing video games. So combined, the average for Americans comes to 10 hours and 39 minutes of screen time a day. Really? Walsh says once you factor in sleeping, you're only left with about 5 or 6 hours a day not dedicated to escaping or being entertained by staring into one screen or another. This is the average... And by the way, when you take these same averages of Americans and you overlay it over the church, it's the same average. The church is not distinct from culture anymore. He goes on and he says, and I agree with him, nothing we do is morally neutral. Our clothing, our diet... The way we speak, even the kinds of thoughts we allow ourselves to think, none of these are neutral. They are either for good or they are for ill, one way or another. So there's certainly no moral neutrality to be found in the sorts of images and ideas we choose to spend up to 10 hours a day passively ingesting. He says we are either being hurt or we are being helped by them, and most of the time we are being hurt. So you may be in that class of people who says, I've been married a long time, I'm sexually pure, I'm not married, I'm sexually pure, that's not an issue, let's move on to the next part of the chapter, and yet the question you have to ask is, what's in cue? What are you watching? More on that in a minute. Psalm 103, verse 1, I've read this before, and it's actually a favorite of mine, and it would shut down most of our TVs if we just stuck it on the front of the screen. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. David wisely said, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. What happened when he did? Bathsheba happened. And it ended up in adultery and lying and cover-up and murder. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. He doesn't say, I hate those who fall away. He doesn't say, I hate those sinners. He says, I hate the work. Because the work reflects the morality. Where does most of what we watch on TV and in the movies and and, and what we read in entertainment, where does most of it come from? Hollywood? Is that the gold star standard of moral uh, supremacy in the world? 
I mean, most of us would laugh at that and say that's ridiculous even to suggest such a thing, that there's any morality coming out of Hollywood, and yet we go home and the TV goes on and we go, what are we watching tonight? What are we going to engage in now? And I remind you that when it comes to abstaining from all things that are sexually immoral, Paul couches this commandment secure in the authority of Jesus Christ. This is not Paul's opinion. This is from Jesus. And what did Jesus say about sexual immorality? He taught very clearly that moral purity is a heart matter. He said in Matthew 5.27, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I believe I've confessed to you before that as a young man growing up in Southern California and going to the beach in the summer, I was committing adultery every day, all day long. If you look at a woman with lust, Jesus says, you're already there. Your heart has already crossed the line. And I think, wow. I think about the only thing that would have worked for me is blindness. And what did Jesus say? Well, if your right hand, right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it far from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He said, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it far from you. I guess with your left hand before you have to cut that one off. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And we smile and we say, it's just entertainment with a shrug. Is it? There's more here. But maybe, as I said a moment ago, it's time we take some moral inventory. What is in queue on Netflix? What movies are saved on on Amazon or or on Hulu? Well, I don't have any of that stuff. Okay, what's on the nightstand or in the Kindle in terms of reading material? What are you investing in? What are you digesting? What's your viewing history on your iPhone or Android device? Well, I don't have a history. I hit delete as quickly as I can. Here's the thing. The average American views 9,230 sexual encounters on TV, 81% outside of marriage every year. Over 10 years, in a decade, the average American has watched 72,900 vicarious experiences of extramarital sex. It's just entertainment, right? Is it? Oh, by the way, I'm sorry, those statistics are wrong. They're 25 years old. That was 25 years ago. Back when the culture was nowhere near as profoundly immoral as it has become today. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. No one addressed this when I was growing up in church. I never heard a single sermon that I can recall from the pulpit, from the pastor on sexual immorality. We talked about it a couple times in youth group. As an adult, never have I heard from another pastor, I guess I'm the only sicko out there, 
I I haven't heard teaching on this. And I'll tell you honestly, truly, the reason why we have heard teaching on this at the bridge is because we're going through the Bible and we've run headlong into it. And you can't get around it. And I think that's why there's such an issue in the church and in the culture today. It's just not talked about. It's just not dealt with. Sermons on purity and sanctification and sexual immorality. And Paul says, abstain from pornea. Abstain is apeko, which means to distance oneself. And it's an interesting word. It was used to describe a ship anchored offshore. That is a vessel, a sailing vessel, maintaining a safe distance from rocky shoals and treacherous waves that could sink the vessel. Paul says that's how we ought to be towards sexual immorality. And then he says in verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Each one of you ought to know how to possess his or her own vessel. And in the Greek language, vessel is also a common metaphor for the body. You ought to know how to possess your body, how to control yourself. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. Just man, just run away. I was at uh, Taekwondo on, on Monday. David was out there doing his thing and, and working out. And, and the owner of Taekwondo, a friend of mine, Greg Woodward, came in and we were talking for a while there. And, and it, it, it was interesting. He was talking about the best... The best thing he can teach the kids is when someone comes at them with threatening, threatening them is not to fight, but to run away. This is Greg Woodward. The guy's like a, I don't know, 50 times black belt. He's, he's awesome. And he's saying, the best, he said, ring around the rosy is one of my favorite games. Just run. Someone comes at you, run around to the other side of the car. I mean, just get away. And that's key to self-possession when it comes to sexual immorality. Just flee, man. Pull a Joseph. You know the old story in the life of Joseph, how Potiphar's wife goes after him and tries to, tries to make him lie with her, and he gets out of there, man. He just flees. And that's key. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man, the pornea man, sins against his own body. And so the question is, do you possess your vessel in sanctification and in honor? Do you abstain keeping the vessel offshore from the immorality that is so rampant in our culture? Do you harbor the heart and keep a safe distance from shallow morality that will just shipwreck your life? Again, this was a problem in the early church. Why? Because large numbers of Gentiles were coming right out of the Greco-Roman culture. Paul wrote this letter back to Thessalonica. He wrote from Corinth. So understand, while he's pinning this or, or dictating it, perhaps to Timothy or someone else, while he's getting this letter ready to go off, he is sitting in Corinth at the foot of the Acro-Corinthus, which was the massive mountain that looms above Corinth, and on the top of that mountain was the temple of Aphrodite. Not named for her hair. Aphrodite. 
Her, her name actually means from the foam of the sea because the Greek mythology is that Aphrodite was born right up out of the foam of the sea. Just came out of there and, and became for the Greeks the goddess of beauty, fertility, and sexual love. It would not be uh, unimaginable for Paul to be sitting there working on this very letter while people are walking by and heading right up to the temple to meet with the temple prostitutes. That was culture. Paul knew that, saw it everywhere he went. Throughout all of Asia, he saw it. Crossing into Europe and and, and to Macedonia, Greece today, he saw it everywhere. This this lame attitude that sexual immorality was just fine. It's just part of the deal. It's, It's what you do. Paul says the Gentiles who do not know God, and they didn't. They really didn't know God. The Roman Seneca said women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. That that was the prevailing attitude. He even said, and I found this interesting, that the fashionable women of Rome numbered their years by the number of their husbands. That was the mentality. Demosthenes, the Greek, wrote, and I've actually quoted this to you before, we keep prostitutes for pleasure, mistresses for day-to-day needs, and wives for the beginning of children and the faithful guardianship of our homes. That was the culture. How close is Western culture to that today? Pretty close, huh? Well, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't define it that way. But it is rampant. And it is clearly rampant in the entertainment we watch and in the extramarital sexual immorality that is constant on the TV and on the movie screen and in the books and in the magazines and in the music and in the games, even the games. I thought with Nintendo we'd be safe. Mario, you know, and Luigi, Yoshi. But it's there. And it's remarkable to me. And it is this culture. It's not just first century. The only difference is the first century didn't have 2,000 years of Christ like we have. They honestly were just coming out of this complete lack of godly knowledge. They did not know. And yet we here today are every bit as morally desensitized as the Greeks and the Romans were. And we think of ourselves as open-minded, intelligent, progressive, enlightened, and so did they. That was the attitudes of the Greeks and Romans. Remember, they they thought they had it all together. The Romans changed the world, man. Some of the things that they were doing in terms of architecture and road structure, we still haven't figured out how they did it. We don't know today. I've told you before, in the building of the temple, there were stones that Herod laid, and we're just starting to maybe figure out ways that he could have lifted those 40, 50, 60 ton stones to build the retaining wall of the temple. We think we're so enlightened, they did too, and the empire of Rome collapsed utterly from within. It just morally decayed. It was not conquered, it was decayed. The Jews, again, of the first century at least had some sense of moral clarity, although a Jewish man could divorce his wife by saying, I divorce thee, I divorce thee, I divorce thee, three times, and having her, handing her a writ of divorce. Why? Well, she burned the toast, man. I mean, he could have any issue he wanted. It didn't have to have any moral thing connected to it. A Jewish man could just say, I'm tired of her. I don't like the way she does things. I'm tired of the way she treats my sandals. I'm done. You know, I, it could be anything. 
What happened at Jesus' first coming? Turning your Bibles over to Mark chapter 1, just for a moment. I want to remind you of something. Mark chapter 1. And I'm going back here because in the first century, a change needed to take place. And as Paul told us, the people did not know God. The Gentiles especially did not know God. And many of the Jewish people were not living as if they knew God. So what took place? What happened? As Jesus came in His first coming, Mark chapter 1, verse 1 tells us the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make His path straight. And John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to Him. And all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by Him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. What a sight. What a marvel was taking place there in Judea. Can you maybe get a sense of their excitement and their anticipation of their coming Messiah? As they began to listen to John and hear him as a voice crying out in the wilderness, He's here. This is the Isaiah prophet. This is the one Isaiah said was coming. And He's here. And we're getting baptized. And Messiah is imminent. Can you, can you get a sense of that? I, I do every day. I anticipate His second coming right now. I look around at our world and I go, Man, like you, Deb. The other day we dropped off the grandkids at, at Deb's house and we were talking just briefly. And we're talking about what's going on in Jerusalem and some of the anti-Semitism going on. There's some real negative things happening in the Middle East. And yet, and Deb kind of goes, you know what this means? And I'm like, what, Deb? She's like, he's going to be here soon. (laughs) She's doing this little jig, you know, which I got to learn because that was precious. The excitement bubbling over of the anticipation of Jesus Christ. Well, they had that. As John is baptizing, the people are going out, and they're confessing their sins, and they're repenting. And and of course, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, which was prophetic fashion. And his diet was locusts and wild honey, which apparently didn't bug him at all. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that happened right before Jesus came. What's your point, Rick? Well, I was asked in an email this week, specifically, did John's baptism replace Yom Kippur? Interesting question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which was a day of of repentance and forgiveness of sin. Annually, the high priest, you know the story, went into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled blood in that place once a year with a rope tied to his ankle in case he died so that they could pull him out. I mean, this was a serious, serious thing. Was John's baptism the replacement of Yom Kippur? Well, the answer is no. The cross was the replacement of Yom Kippur. But a beautiful, perfect replacement because Yom Kippur was a sacrifice of atonement. The cross was a sacrifice of propitiation. Do you remember the difference that atonement means covering? And all of the sacrifices, including the Day of Atonement, they covered the sins of Israel for one more year 
you're covered. They would sacrifice and God would say, okay, Israel, I got you covered. I am not going to hold your sins against you. I'm going to hold your faith in trust. You know, I'm going to credit you with righteousness because you've offered the sacrifice in faith. So I'm going to hold off. But the sin's still there. It's just covered. And then Jesus comes and all that sin that was covered, uncovered and is thrown on Him at Calvary. He takes it all on Himself. He dies propitiation. What's propitiation? It's not covering. It is permanent cleansing. And that's the difference of the cross. The cross takes over Yom Kippur. And you can read more about that. Romans chapter 3, Hebrews 9, uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. And those verses are all listed up there behind me. All talk about propitiation and the full and total cleansing of Jesus. So back to the question, was John's baptism replacing Yom Kippur? No, it wasn't. The further part of the question was, so what was his baptism for? The Bible says for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. So what's that all about? Listen, the people would come out. They repented, which was simply they turned to God, and they were forgiven to that point. Just like with Yom Kippur, covered to that point. Still needed the death of Jesus to happen. So what was John's baptism all about? Readiness. Preparation. Anticipation. Why mention it now? My friends, if the first coming of Jesus invited an immersion of repentance, how much more His second coming? The baptism of repentance there? How about a baptism of repentance now in our living our lives that we repent and we are turning to God? Why? Because we are expecting Him Because we are looking to Him and we want to be ready in every way. And so when I am made aware of my sin, when I come face to face with my immoral choices, that I repent now immediately. Why? Because I'm in conditioning for my salvation. I am working out, Paul says, my salvation with fear and trembling. I am exercising. I am practicing. I want to be a saint. When I realize I'm not living saintly in one way or another, man, it's time to change. It's time to repent. It's time to apply the same principle as the baptism of John in that, right before that coming, to now, which is right before His second coming. Another way to put it is this. Expectancy necessitates moral purity. If I am expecting Jesus at any moment, it necessitates that I live a morally pure life. And conversely, moral purity cultivates more expectancy. See how the two work hand in hand. But there is another element here. More than the personal issue of sexual morality or immorality, it is the interpersonal element. And that is in verse 6, Paul says, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. What matter? Sexual immorality. He's still talking about pornea. But he says that no one transgress or defraud a brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. This is not new teaching, Thessalonica. We were there. We talked about this, Paul says in the short few weeks that he was there. We discussed these things ahead of time. Have you ever thought of sexual immorality as defrauding another person? 
that by engaging in some form of pornea, whatever it might be in that broad spectrum, is actually defrauding a brother or a sister, or that it's, it's actually transgressing them, The important thing to get here is we're in the midst of the labor of love, right? It's not just about your morality. It is about the morality for a brother or a sister. It's about how my choices impact you. Be they moral or immoral. That immorality is not just having to do with my life. That's that's how we tend to think is where you go centric. You know, we're, we're so self-focused that we think, well, I don't want to cross that line because that will make me this way or that way or, or I need to be careful or I feel bad about what I did here because, boy, that, that puts a, a mark of sin on my life. What about the other person? What about the brother or sister who have been transgressed or defrauded? Those two words. Transgressed is hooperbino and it means to cross a line. You ever cross a line with a brother or sister in Christ? How about this? Defraud is pleonecteo. And that word, defraud, literally is to take advantage of another by using superior rank or position. We have a word for that in our culture. It's sexual harassment. You know, what interests me about that is sexual harassment in our culture. (laughs) Really? People get all suddenly pious when sexual harassment occurs, like in the workplace. People are just shocked. Oh, I can't believe that's happened. It's like congressmen getting upset because one of their own had an affair. And they all are. You know, really? But premarital pornea, think of it this way. Premarital sexual immorality defrauds a future spouse. It takes something from the future spouse of the person that you have just been with. I'm saying you generically. Adultery. What does that do? It defrauds a current spouse. Take something from the person's current spouse that is not yours to take. You've just defrauded a person. All sexual immorality, and I, I haven't ever thought of it this way, so maybe this is new for you, maybe it's just new for me. All sexual immorality defrauds another person of their purity. It's not just about us. And the Bible defines defrauding as anything we do that might influence another brother or sister to stumble into moral impurity. Anything we do. Now again, you may say, I've never had an affair. I've never committed adultery. So this just doesn't speak to me. Romans 14, 13, Paul said, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Ever recommend a show to a brother or sister in Christ that Jesus wouldn't watch? I have. Ever pass along a book that Jesus wouldn't read? Ever mention a magazine he wouldn't pick up? Ever say, hey, check out this band that he would not have on his playlist? See, that's where I'm guilty. (laughs) Big time, because I love music. And if you looked at my iPhone, it's not all worship music. I just love good music. Sometimes, halfway into a song, you realize what they're saying, and you're like, oh. But it's just entertainment, shrug. It's got a great beat, great feel. Oh. Guilty. I mean, 
guilty as charged. You ever invite someone to play a game he would not play? Now, because of the wording here, the scholars, some of the scholars think that Paul is referring perhaps to an adulterous affair that's taking place in the Thessalonian fellowship. That may be a little strong. I think I read this and I think maybe Paul's trying to head one off. Maybe Timothy, while he was up there, saw a man and a woman drifting dangerously close to the shallows. And he mentions to Paul, hey, brother so-and-so and and sister so-and-so, they seem awfully chummy. And so the Spirit says, Paul, you need to give them a clear and severe warning right now so that they get back out there to the place of abstinence. That they harbor their ships far away from each other. The labor of love compels us to work for the best interests of others, not just ourselves. And in case anyone takes this issue a little too lightly, Paul applies some good Old Testament terminology to Jesus at the end of verse 6 saying, The Lord is the avenger in all these things. We told you about this. We're warning you about this. Remember we warned you. And note this, the Lord's the avenger. What does that mean? It means if you defraud a brother, he's going to stand up for that brother. You defraud a sister, he is going to take the side of the one defrauded. Do you want to be on the opposite side of Jesus? Those who say the Old Testament God is the avenging, vengeful God, and Jesus is cool... Jesus is the avenger. The Lord here is Jesus. Now the Old Testament tells us, Psalm 94.1, and a plethora of other places, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. He is the God of vengeance. He will, per- he will pay back. He makes sure there will be perfect justice. And that's Jesus. In fact, Jesus says, the Father doesn't judge anymore. He's given all judgment to the Son. And so the warning is clear here. Paul uses the avenger for Christ who will avenge those who have been wrong. Verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. I love that. He called us in sanctification. What does that mean? It means the moment you accepted Jesus as Lord, He started sanctifying you. Immediately. You were immediately saved, we get that, but you also immediately stepped into the process of sanctification. He didn't wait a few years. We'll let them get their, you know, sea legs under them. Immediately, you're, you're now in sanctification. You're now being conditioned for the salvation that He has already promised you. And He says, so, verse 8, He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. That's huge. It reminds me, it rings of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 where he said, don't you understand that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Would you marry the temple of the Spirit with a prostitute? He says to Corinth, you know, there at the foot of the temple of Aphrodite, would you do such a thing? If you you realize the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, would you then take the very temple that He indwells, that vessel, and sail it right into the rocks? of adultery, or fornication, or pornea. But there's something else here that that I realized. If we ignore this standard of moral purity, 
We are not just discounting one pastor's personal exhortation. Paul says to reject this is to reject God who gives us His Spirit. Why is that significant? Well, why does God give us His Spirit? Spiritual gifts. Yeah, yeah. Why does God give us His Spirit? Seal of salvation. Absolutely. Why does God give us His Spirit? So we can have peace. You know, that surpasses all comprehension. Absolutely. Why does God give us His Spirit? Earlier we read that the flesh cannot please God. We've already talked about we can only please Him by faith and by His Spirit. So why does God give us His Holy Spirit? Get this down. The Holy Spirit enables us to obey Him. And I truly believe this. Without the Holy Spirit, we would not be able to obey God. We might even have faith, but we would not be enabled. Brothers and sisters, if issues like morality are difficult for anyone else but me, (laughs) if they're difficult for us, please understand this. Let me clarify something. I don't have a sexually immoral issue. My, my, My wife and I have a wonderful marriage and I have been faithful to her. I can tell you that with all integrity, faithful for 31 years, and I plan to be faithful until Jesus comes, or another however long, whichever comes first. Faithful till death do us part or the rapture takes us home. But my friends, this whole issue of pornea in the culture, I am, I am as, as condemned as anyone, unless by faith... I say, Lord, how can I please you? Unless by the power of His Holy Spirit, I can say, no. No, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. I'm not listening to that. I'm saying no to these things. How? Because the Spirit empowers me to do it. And that's such a great blessing. That means that all these things that might be difficult for us otherwise don't have to be. What do you do? Holy Spirit, help me stop this. Holy Spirit... Give me the power to turn off Netflix. To say no to this form of entertainment or that. Empower me, Holy Spirit of the living God, to love my brothers and sisters and to stop defrauding them by taking away from their righteousness because I choose to be unrighteous. Holy Spirit, give me the power. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 1, We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. That is huge. That we have been given the Spirit to enable us to obey. And Paul reminds them in Thessalonica they had been given the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. You received the Word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So now Paul's saying the very same Spirit who you were given in joy now is here to enable you to obey. You have the power. You have the faith. So now act on it. Walk it out. The opposite of this is to indulge in sexual immorality, we actually have to deliberately reject the Holy Spirit. I have to say no to the Spirit to engage in certain sin behaviors. And I think of David saying, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Oh Lord, don't take your Spirit from me. 
when faced with a moral decision, bring that to mind. If I choose to go down this road, I am saying, Jesus, I don't want you with me. Who would say that? I want him with me every moment of every day. I never want to lose his spirit. So His Spirit empowers obedience. Invite that. Invite His Spirit to influence you so that you can influence others with sanctification. Verse 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Remember, that's the whole thing that this is couched in. This is the labor of love. To love each other with godly agape love. That's why this issue is even being discussed by Paul. Why he's bringing it to light. And he says, Thessalonica, you guys are doing great. I love you guys. I see you loving each other. I'm really not trying to hammer you here. You know what we're talking about. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. The labor of love, I see it in you. You're doing well. But he says, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Okay, hold it right there. You know that's the third time that Paul has said that? Talked about this earlier today. Three times. You wouldn't see it unless you were reading it in the Greek. But he uses a word here, and he uses it over and over and over. The word is parasuo, and the first time he used it was back in verse 12 of chapter 3. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love. Parasuo. Excel still more. That word, it means over the top. To, to truly go for it. Abounding in love, excelling in agape love one for another. Go for it, Paul says. And then, a second time we see Parasuo, in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says that we have told you how you ought to walk and please God, that you excel still more. Parasuo. As if it wasn't enough that you excel in agape, now he says excel in the walk. And now for the third time he comes back to it. You love each other, we see you loving each other, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. It's not enough. Keep excelling. Don't stop. We lack the completion of love in us. Keep going for it. Keep going forward. And it's an interesting progression because he says generically abound in love for each other. And he says even more so in the way you treat each other with sexual morality... And then he says now, and even more so, so this one's going to be big, right? This is the next, this is even more important than sexual morality is. Keep excelling, keep abounding. I mean, this whole thing, these three words, it's almost like reading a crescendo to the second coming of Jesus. The crescendo of our conditioning. Excel still more, and I'm so excited to find out what's next. And he says, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Okay, Um, great. And attend to your own business, all right? And work with your hands, which I'm lame at, just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Excel still more! This is all about the labor of love. And so understanding what Paul is about to say to us, or has just said to us as we read it, is about the labor of love for other people as much as for yourself. Get this, the quiet life. And I love that he says it, it sounds very peaceful. 
Sounds like a fall evening with the fireplace crackling and the, and the cell phone's turned off and the TV's off and the kids are in bed and it's just chill time. Live the quiet life. A quiet life does not mean cloistered. It does not mean introverted. He is not saying, Christians, look, don't talk religion or politics. Just keep your head down, go to work, go home, and don't talk to anybody about it. That is not what he's talking about in the least. i got to share this. We were talking last week about the Babylon Bee, which is a satirical Christian website. Very funny. I'm not saying I recommend it, because i got to go back and look some more. But there, it's a Christian site. And it just makes fun of everything. Political stuff and, and stuff that's in the news and, and stuff that's in the church. Well, here, here's an article that came out recently. Heading. Local church offers introvert service where nobody has to talk to anyone else. <laughs> Cleveland, Ohio. Faith Life Church revealed Thursday the unprecedented popularity of their newly launched introvert service. A church service where believers averse to social situations can come and worship the Lord without ever having to talk to anyone else. Taking place after both the tradition, traditional and contemporary offerings, the new service allows congregants to enjoy church in silence. Without being forced to greet each other with a saying or a question, touch each other in some way, or engage in never-ending small talk afterward. At publishing time, the Faith Life elders have confirmed that they are in the market for a new church building to accommodate the explosion in attendance due to the new service. (laughs) That is not what Paul's talking about. Hey, you can be introverted personality-wise or extroverted. That's not the issue here. Jesus said in Matthew 10.27, What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear. Proclaim upon the housetops. That is not just to one Christian or another. That's not just a call to the extrovert. That is to every one of us. Whatever our personality type is, whatever we're comfortable with or not, is beside the point. You have been told the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, shout it out. Tell it. Share it. Paul said in Ephesians 6.19, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. But here, Pastor, he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Okay, well what does that mean? What does that look like? Four things, he says. Number one, attend to or mind your own business. My daughter Hannah, when she was in high school, used to say, MYOB. Mind your own business. Hey, Hannah, who are you talking on the phone with? MYLB, Dad. Hey, I paid for that phone. That's my business. Mind your own business. Don't be a busybody. You want to live the quiet life that Paul's describing? Keep your nose out of other people's stuff. You know? Don't be a busybody. I love these verses. Proverbs 10, verse 8. The wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be ruined. Proverbs 17.28 Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. (laughs) When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. You can be a complete moron, but if you just don't talk, no one's going to know. Mind your own business. There were some busybodies running around there in Thessalonica. Work with your own hands is the second one. 
This is how you lead this quiet, respectful life, this God-honoring life. Work with your own hands. In other words, don't be a sluggard. Proverbs 10.26 Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who send him. Don't be lazy. Work. We don't work for our salvation, but we better work. Better keep our hands busy. What's the old saying that uh, idle hands are the devil's playground? You don't have anything to do, that's when you get into trouble. So, don't be a sluggard. Don't be lazy. Don't live off the government dole. Everybody can do something. Well, pastor, I'm disabled. I understand that. You can do something. Do it. That's what the Bible teaches. Behave properly, number three, toward outsiders. Mind your own business, work with your hands, behave properly toward outsiders. What is that? Well, that's the labor of love. Very simply, don't be egocentric. And that's the battle of our lives. Because we all are. Because we all see the world from right here. We all look from inside out. And so everything is is perceived and understood in how it impacts or affects us. And the whole of Christianity, this is a stunning reality and it's the only religion that is like this. The whole of Christianity is to get out of myself and to put others first. To see others as more important. Knowing how important I already am to God. But to stop being so inwardly focused and behave properly toward others. So I'm not defrauding a brother or a sister. I'm not transgressing someone else. And then finally he says, and not be in any need. In other words, don't be a mooch. Did Paul have someone in mind when he was writing this? Is he thinking about, you know, Joe Schmo up there in, in Thessalonica? Paul hits this even harder in 2 Thessalonians 3, which I told you 2 Thessalonians may well have been written before 1 Thessalonians and be the letter that Paul sent with Timothy up to Thessalonica before Timothy came back and then he wrote this one. doesn't matter in our theology, the teaching is exactly the same, but it's possible that 2 Thessalonians went first. And in that book, chapter 3, verse 10, <laughs> Paul says, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Man, would we bar someone from a potluck because they're being a sluggard? Paul would. Uh, excuse me, church work day was yesterday, and uh, I saw you sitting there sipping lemonade all day long, so the burritos are off limits, pal. Back of the line. You didn't work. You don't eat. He says, we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. Listen, grace does not deny discipline. Forgiveness does not mean that now we just kick back and wait for it all to happen. Be disciplined. He says, some are doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. I love, he's just, he's just fierce with the truth. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.8, and this, this ought to really make us sit up and pay attention. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, and he is talking to men here. It's not denying that a woman can't provide for the household. That's not the point. But he says, if anyone does not provide for his own, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
That's how serious this whole issue is. The leading a quiet life is leading a saintly life. It's leading an honorable life. And you might ask the question, well, what's the connection between sexual purity and living the quiet life? It's simple. It's all about the labor of love. It's all about my choices and how they might impact or influence somebody else. We don't engage in the labor of love so we can be good people. Or so we can be upstanding citizens. We engage in the labor of love for the sake of all of those around us, saved and unsaved. Because we know one truth. Jesus is coming. He is coming. Will we be in condition when He comes? The conditioning that He describes, that Paul describes, Ephesians 5.27, so that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. The bride... The bride who's ready for the groom. That's what this is all about. The labor of love is about loving others, again, saved and unsaved, so that we might be the spotless bride. So we are looking for and hastening His return, and in so doing that causes us to abound, to excel, to excel even more in love, and in moral purity, and in personal industry. And all the while, This labor of love, it works to condition us for Him to come and receive His spotless bride. And John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Jesus, I say this with a little trepidation, but be the avenger. Lord Jesus, I pray that You would avenge in my heart the wrongs that I have done. And bring me to repentance and recognition of those things. And cleanse my heart, Lord. And Father and Son, take not Your Holy Spirit from me. From any of us, fill us with Your Spirit and empower us by Your Spirit to have faith that pleases You, Lord. And to live lives that are morally pure. And that are even in terms of our interactions with each other and and the way we live and the way we choose to live. Lord, that we would do so in a way that honors You. Not tooting our own horn, but quietly living out the Gospel of Jesus Christ in word and in deed, Father. We thank You, Father. We thank You, Son. We thank You, Holy Spirit, that You abide in us and empower us to saintly living until You come. In Jesus' name, Amen.